Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is James Mould, a revered family physician, geriatrician, researcher, and leader who has helped to reshape our thinking about health and health care. In 2014, the year he retired, Oklahoma University established the James W. Mould Oklahoma Primary Healthcare Improvement Cooperative with its Center for Clinical and Translational Research, and he was named Family Physician of the Year by his clinical peers. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Jim Mould, whose humility and compassion is an inspiration to doctors worldwide. Well, you're very welcome to the show, Jim. I wanted to start with asking you a question I sometimes ask my guests. How did you come to be a family doctor? I went to medical school at Duke in in Durham, North Carolina, and they had an interesting curriculum. First of all, I I guess I should preface all of this by saying I had no idea what I was getting into when I got into medicine in the first place. I probably should never have been a doctor. I I probably should have been a field and stream biologist. But at any rate, circumstances at the time suggested that I should go to medical school. So when I got into medical school, Duke had an interesting curriculum where we did our, our basic sciences in the first year, our clinical in the, our core clinical in the second year. And then if you went straight through, you had about six months off before you would start back with elective basic sciences in the third year and elective clinical in the fourth year. So I had a six-month window where I could stay on on time and I could do something of interest to me. And so I set up some I set up a rotation, uh, not 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 for credit, but just uh, for experience, with a family physician in a small town in Idaho, in rural Idaho. He was the only he was the only physician in the in the whole county. He wasn't really a family physician. He he had done sort of a rotating residency. And that, that experience, and then I, I, so I spent three months with him, and I spent another three months with a, another family physician in, in uh, rural Wyoming. And those experiences sort of taught me what it could be like if you really cared about your patients and you knew them well, and you know all their family members, and you knew the context, and, and you cared what happened to them. And then I went back to Duke, and I saw how things were at the academic medical center, and there was such a contrast. And then at that time, I, I graduated from medical school in 1974. The, the, the specialty of family medicine had just started in the United States in 1969. So it was a very new specialty. And I've always been a sort of a, the kind of person that would sort of be, I don't know what the word is for it, but I, 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 I welcome, I saw it as a revolution and I saw it as the revolution that I wanted to join. So it was, they were talking about the same things that I saw when I went to Idaho and Wyoming. And, and despite the fact that everybody told me I shouldn't do it, that, that just made me want to do it more. So, <laughs> and, and so I joined the revolution and I was fortunate to get into the, what I felt like was in retrospect was the best possible residency for me. There were, there were a few really good residencies in the United States at that time, probably five. And uh, I think even though I didn't choose this residency as my first choice, I matched. And it was, uh, it was really the best possible of the options. And so, uh, and a lot of the people who went to residency with me ended up in academic family medicine and 
are still making uh, good name, names for themselves throughout the, the discipline. So I, it was just a really good place to be. A lot of it was like Camelot, basically. I mean, it was just really, really good people with really good motives, and you know, it, it was they were all revolutionaries, basically. Tell me about the experience in Idaho, because that was clearly very, very formative for you. So give me an example of the kind of patient you saw there and the kind of interaction that took place that inspired you to become a family doctor. <laughs> so I'll tell you about the first patient that uh, comes to mind. <laughs> um, when, I was first, when I first arrived and I was walking up to the clinic, a woman was coming out and she uh, greeted me. She said, you, oh, you must be the new doctor. And I said, well, I'll be working with uh, Dr. Goodenough. And, and, um, and she said, oh, he's the most wonderful doctor ever. You know, he gave me these pills and, and it's just made me so much better. I, he just, he's just such a wonderful doctor. And I looked, at, she, she showed me her pills. And I looked at them and they said, placebo, 250 milligrams, three times a day. <laughs> so I knew I was in the right place. Placebo three times a day, I think that probably is the driver for what medicine did subsequently, which is that it wasn't placebo anymore. It was an active ingredient of some sort. And of course, I remember the time when in the NHS, suddenly placebos were outlawed. We used to prescribe this thing called gentian alkaline mixture, which was essentially horrible tasting liquid, which was a placebo. And it was, it was no longer available on the NHS. This is in the UK. But of course, thereby hangs a tail because people became used to the idea of taking pills to make them better, no matter what was going on in their lives. You, you and I agreeing about that. Talk a little bit about how you perceive that happening. I guess you'll quickly figure out my political persuasion here, but the, I don't think Healthcare should have anything to do with money. I don't think physicians or their patients should be thinking about money when they get receive their healthcare. And I think that the pharmaceutical the intersection, the example of why that's true is if you look at the intersection between the pharmaceutical industry and and the healthcare field or profession. Every time, every place where that intersection occurs, it it sullies the healthcare sector. The two should not be mixed. And, and so I, mean, I think it, it's all about profits. It's all about the pharmaceutical industry and, and profits. And I think that, I mean, it is, it's not the reason we have the conceptual framework that we have. That's a result of the history of medicine. But it certainly has, they've certainly used that framework to their best advantage. And, and, and so it's been very difficult, even once the World Health Organization said that it's not just about fixing things. No, it's not just about solving problems. It's not just about diseases. Even, even, once, even once they said that many years ago, there was, there was nothing we could do because we were stuck both in the history and also in this profiteering, this motive of trying to, to um, cultivate sickness so that they could sell drugs, basically. Yes, I think we agree on that point. Uh, money and people in distress don't go together. People in distress deserve to have their distress dealt with and not have to pay money because in the end of the day, it costs society an awful lot more and you've got distressed people walking around who can't afford the care that they need. Now, when we reflect back across the career, we know that medicine has always stepped in 
to solve problems that are much more complex. So, for example, front, frontal lobotomies was a, a good example of where they said, well, you know, if you're anxious or you are somehow hysterical, that you just take this uh, sharp instrument and shove it up somebody's nose and twiddle it about, and lo and behold, they're suddenly better. Now, we laugh at that now, but of course, we've seen the same thing happen with bariatric surgery. And where you, you can accept that somebody who is on the verge of dying because of their problem requires drastic measures. But of course, those drastic measures are now being implemented in people much lower down the scale. So if your BMI is barely over overweight, you can now go in some places and have bariatric surgery and have your gut taken out so that you are consuming less. We're, we've moved, we think that we've advanced in medicine, but we are still in some ways still behind on that. Now, I want to talk particularly about your paper on goal-directed healthcare, redefining health and healthcare in the era of value-based care. It was a paper that you published in 2016, which I think, by the way, is the most important paper I've read probably in, a, in my career. This is an extraordinary piece of work, very thoughtful. But I want to challenge you a little bit on it. You want to hear the history of that paper? I had retired and I had given up any hope of uh, convincing people that I was right about how we should be practicing. And I saw this um, challenge. It was, a, it was a contest. This this journal was trying to get some, build its reputation, this uh, journal called Cure Us or Curious. And so they had a contest to, to write a paper about uh, the definition of health in a value-based world or something like that. And they were going to pay $10,000 for first prize and 5000 for second and 1000 for third. And I said, they're asking for me to write because this is, this is, what, I, this is what I care about. This is, I, know, I know how to write this paper. So I wrote the, so I wrote the paper and I won second place. So I, I, I won $5,000, which was enough to publish my first book. Um, <laughs> and the, the, guy that, the guy that won first place was, uh, I think... Uh, He's either a historian or anthropologist who, who reviewed the various definitions of health through through time through history, uh, and I read his paper. I thought mine was better, but anyway, <laughs> that's why that paper got written. <laughs> now, I've, I'd written a lot of other papers prior to that without much uh, fanfare or, or success, so it was. I didn't I didn't expect much from that paper. I'm glad you liked it, though. I did like it very much, and we will definitely in our show notes put references to all the other things that you've written, which are also extraordinarily insightful and good work. But I want to talk a little bit about what that paper would actually mean in reality today. So supposing I was overweight and I made an appointment to see my family doctor here in Australia, where it's fee-for-service type setup, uh, as it is, I think, in many other parts of the world. So you make an appointment and you go in and you're overweight, but you've got hypertension and you're noted to have a high cholesterol, you've got a little bit of depression, you're not particularly happy at your job. So this is the context that you are bringing to a 10-minute appointment to see a family doctor today. The same family doctors that inspired you and I to become family doctors. So they've got 10 minutes and they're sitting there poised with, at the computer and you come in and you sit down and they say, what can I do for you today? And you say, I'm here about my high blood pressure. Talk me through what, how that visit would unfold in the current climate and then what it would look like in the world that we would like to see. Well, in, in, my, in my 
perfect world, the, the most important part of that visit would be to schedule a longer visit. So I, I think, so, so there are four, the goal-directed healthcare focuses on, focuses directly, I should say, on four major types of goals. One is prevention of premature death. I, I would say survival, but, you know, everybody's going to die at some point. So I, the goal is to prevent premature death. That is death that could be preventable. And along that same line, to prevent pre- premature disability. So preventing premature death and disability, is a, the strategies are prevention, all types of prevention, uh, pre-primary, if they want to call social determinants, uh, uh, you know, and, and primary and secondary and tertiary, and all those things are prevention, basically. The second goal is improving quality of life, current quality. And that has to do with helping people do the things and uh, enjoy the things and, and find the things that people have to be able to do and the things that people find meaningful. And that includes relationships. The third goal type is, is personal growth and development, basically achieving developmental milestones, building resilience and adaptability and so forth. And the fourth, and we don't spend a lot of time on that one. And frankly, I know the least about that because I really wasn't trained to do that. And the fourth goal uh, is to have a good death because we're all going to die and we you all have certain preferences about how we'd like to have that happen. So a person who, who has a, a variety of risk factors, as you mentioned, well, all people of, you know, above the age of two should probably have a big visit once a year. And, and I realize that that, is, that takes quite a lot of time and could consume all of your time and probably needs to be thought through in, in terms of who does that work. You know, and certainly the patient should do a fair amount of that work ahead of time. So, and that, that visit, and, and it should be assisted by computerization because the, 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 to, to assess a person's risk factors uh, as they should be assessed and, and to figure out, try to figure out what would be the most impactful kinds of things to do to try to prevent premature death, that's complicated. And I think the computer could help us with that. And when I was a faculty member, we did design a program that did just that. So it would produce a list of recommended preventive services, including social determinants, primary, secondary, tertiary, that and in order of how much impact they probably would have on life expectancy. So with the assistance of a computer and with patient homework, and then a, a, a visit that's longer than 10 minutes, one would ha- have a conversation about risk factors and what kinds of things might be most helpful in terms of preventing premature death. And people can't do everything on the list, so it's important to prioritize. So the most important strategic sort of concept or principle of that first goal is is prioritization. So trying to figure out not just what would be most impactful, but what that person is most likely to be able and willing to do. So it's a sort of informed brainstorming that leads to a negotiated plan that makes sense to both parties. It's a, an equal exchange of, of scientific information from medicine and personal information with regard to values and preferences and abilities and resources and so forth. And you come to some, some agreement then about what makes the most sense. So that would happen not at that 10-minute visit, but at, at a bigger visit. At the 10-minute visit, if, if we chose to use that time to talk about those kinds of risk factors. I mean, it depends. It depends really on how much of a relationship I already have with that person. So if that's the first visit, there's not much we can really do. 
at that visit, except for me to explain how our practice works and the philosophy, my philosophy of care, and, and then to schedule a bigger visit. But I will tell you, and I know you have an interest in um, in obesity. My way of thinking, we wouldn't we wouldn't separate it into uh, underweight, normal weight, overweight, obesity. There's no need to do that. There's no need to categorize it. It's a continuum. It's like blood pressure is a continuum. There's no need to talk about normotensin tension and pre-hypertension and hypertension that you lose some of the granularity when you do that however i I must admit that we lack some some of the data that we need to be able to use it as a continuous variable but still i think the the danger of labeling and the adverse effects of labeling don't affect everyone but, but you don't know who is going to be adversely affected so we should try to avoid labeling unless we know that that's uh, going to be a useful strategy. So the other thing I've learned about obesity is that, uh, and we've, we looked at this in an interesting way, you know, we, we looked at people who had been successful at, at losing more than 10% of their body weight and keeping it off for at least a year. We, and we asked them what, how they did that and you know, what the secret was. And I think others have found the same thing, and that is that survival is not a strong motivator for behavior change probably of any sort, but certainly weight loss is it's not a strong motivator for weight loss. It's not strong enough, unless I guess you're close to death. Um, but, but for most people, it's not strong. Enough. Quality of life goals are strong. So I would ask that person to tell me about a typical day in their life, you know, t- because that's the, it seems to be the most comfortable way for me to get some sense of who this person is. I, when I first went into practice, I would ask, you know, tell me as much about yourself as you can in the next five minutes or something like that. That is a terrible question. Or, you know, are you under a lot of stress? That's a terrible question. But, but what's a typical day like for you is a pretty good question. It's comfortable. People don't mind answering it. And then I can sort of help guide them through that answer. You know, if they go too fast, I'll slow them down. If they go too slow, I'll speed, I'll speed them up. And I'll ask, then I'll ask questions, strategic questions along the way. Well, you didn't mention bathing. You know, do, how, how, do you, how do you bathe? Or, or you didn't mention breakfast, so you, you don't eat breakfast. You know, I'll ask those kinds of questions. And then I'll ask them, what are the things, if we haven't already figured this out by, now, by then, I would ask them, what are the things that give you the most trouble in, in your typical day? And and then I would ask, what would you like to be able to do that you can't do now? So when you get to that question, what would you like to be able to do that you can't do now? That becomes a potential mo- motivator for behavior change. So some of these people said, I want to be able to, I, want, I don't want to be an embarrassment to my grandkids. Okay. So because I, or I want to be able to get down on the floor and play with my grandkids or something like that. And you say, and, and what's, when, what's preventing you from doing that? And they, they would say, well, my weight, I, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm just too heavy. I, I just, I can't, I can't keep up with them or whatever. And, you, and, and, then you, and, and then you focus on that goal, which is a quality of life goal. And then, and then there are other pieces that have to be in place. So, and so what these people told us was you have to first get your head on straight. You have to, you have to make a commitment for the rest of your life to live differently. And that's a big commitment. So you have to make that commitment and you have to know why you're making it. So we try to connect that to, to the goal that they just stated. Then you have to come up with a plan that actually you can stick to, some sort of a, a diet and exercise plan you actually can stick to for the rest of your life. 
And you may, that may take some trial and error to figure that out, but you, you need to be interested enough to try to figure that out. And you have to have support. You have to have somebody else that's going to support you, your husband, a coworker, a, you know, a neighbor, a family, another family member who, who will see you through the difficult times. All of those things have to be in place if that's what you're going to do. Now, now in a 10-minute visit, I'll give you another example. And this is someone I, I knew because I'd been taking care of her. But I said, you know, I, I think one of the reasons you come to see me, I think, is so that I can help you to live as long as possible. And is that right? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what do you have left to live for? And she said, well, you know, she started talking about our kids and our grandkids, weddings and marriages and graduations and those kind of things. And I said, that sounds wonderful. I, you know, I hope you lived long enough to see those things happen. I said, if you were going to pick one thing that you could do that would maybe increase the chances you'll get to see all those things happen, what would that be? And she said, I should probably stop smoking. Well, I had worked with her on smoking for some time, and she had never agreed to do that. And I said, well, that's, that's what I would have picked, too. I, I agree with that, with that choice. And she said, I'm going to do it. And she did. But she did because she had in mind kids and grandkids and graduations and, uh, and marriages and th- so, th- so forth, was tied to a goal that she had. And those kinds of quality of life goals, I mean, even though that was, an end of li- uh, that was a prevention discussion, it was a discussion of, of living longer, but still she was focused on, on quality of life issues. And so there are things, you know, even though you're working on a particular type of goal, you have to also understand what motivates people to, to make behavior change. Yes, I can see that. And I, uh, it resonates because you're right. You really need to understand the context in which somebody is presenting. You really need to understand it. You need to invest the time to get to know that. Now, of course, in the rural parts of the world, your world and mine, where you are the only doctor in town and you get to know people, you see them in the supermarket aisle, you see them at the gym, you see them at the swimming pool, wherever. You get to know people really well. You see them with their families. You see the interactions happening well outside the the consulting room. That doesn't happen in inner city practices. You barely see people for more than 10 minutes. You do have to have one big visit a year for the prevention visit. I don't think you can do that easily in in a short visit. And I don't think 10 minutes, you you can't do anything in 10 minutes, but, but maybe 15 or 20 minutes, you can do something meaningful with the right questions. So I'll give you another example. I was on the hospital service and I met this man. He was, I guess, in his early 60s. And he had been in the hospital three times that year already for uh, exacerbation of congestive heart failure. And the residents were frustrated with him because he, they pretty much identified the problem, which he just sometimes wouldn't take his medicine. He was on Lenoxin, he was on Lasix, um, and something else. And uh, so uh, they, they started thinking, well, maybe he likes to be in the hospital. And, and so I went and talked with him. And this was a 10-minute conversation. I said, so, so the, the residents think that, something, that you get worse sometimes because you don't always take your medicine. He said, yeah, I suspect that's probably true. And I said, why don't you, why don't you talk, talk me through this and tell me what a typical day is like for you? I love the typical day question. So he said, well, I live in those high-rise apartments about two blocks away, and I'm on about the fifth floor, and, I, and I, I get up in the morning, I eat breakfast, I take a shower, and then I go down to the first floor where they have a senior center, and, and you know, we play, I don't know, dominoes and, and some other games, and then they have a, a program usually at lunch, and, and then I come back up, and I, uh, I take a little nap, and then I um, 
do some reading and then I, and I have supper and I watch television. And I said, so why don't you always, why don't you take your medicine every day? And he said, well, because on the, in that senior center, there's only one bathroom and uh, it's, there's always a long line to get in the bathroom. And I'm afraid that I'm not going to get to the front of the line by the time I lose my urine. And that would, if I, I'd be so embarrassed and I would never be able to come to the senior center again. And I said, so the medicine you take, you think the medicine you take makes you pee more? And he said, well, I know it does. You know, that, that, uh, that Lasix really makes me have to pee. I have to pee urgently. And I said, well, why don't you take it in the afternoon? And he said, because they told me I should take it first thing in the morning. And I said, well, the reason they told you that was because they didn't want you to be up at night. And he said, well, it wouldn't be a problem if I was up at night because I'd be in my apartment and I'd have the bathroom right there. And, uh, and I said, well, so why don't you just so now I just told you that story in less than five minutes, right? That doesn't take that much time. Okay. So we ju- just adjusted his medicine to the afternoon. And then the next time I saw him for the next 15 minute appointment, I said, what would you like to be able to do that you can't do now? He said, well, I'd like to be able to walk down two blocks to the pharmacy because I've, I've got some old friends down there that I, I used to like to talk to. I said, well, what keeps you from doing that? And he said that I, I, I get winded and I get tightness in my chest uh, and, you know, and there's no place to sit down. There's no bench or anything on the way. And I'm afraid I'm going to collapse on the way down there. So we worked out a deal where he could take a sublingual nitroglycerin before he headed down uh, to the to the pharmacy. Just to, you know, we tested it out, and that, that seemed to work. It held him long enough uh, that he could get down to the pharmacy. If he needed to take another one, he could do that on the way back. So that doesn't take time. It just takes a different kind of question. Agreed. But what you you also say is that you got to know this man, and you got to know what was important to him. Once you'd invested that time, initially it became so much easier to have meaningful and helpful conversations that helped him achieve his goals, to be with his friends and not to to worry about having an accident waiting in a queue somewhere, which is wonderful. I also extended his life by by keeping him out of the hospital and and getting his medicine straightened up. So we we, we accomplished two two purposes. Plus, along the way, I taught him a little bit about congestive heart failure. So he developed a bit more uh, capability. Uh, so, you know, so, if you want to call it growth and development. So, so we really addressed sort of three different goals in a fairly, fairly short period of time. Precisely. And the goal that you achieved there or the goals that healthcare wants you to achieve, it wants to tick that box that you've achieved better outcomes for the patient, at least in terms of outcomes that some bureaucrat will be able to measure and say, you know, longer survival, better compliance, et cetera, et cetera. Now that you mentioned the word compliance, this is a really important, important point. I think that maybe the very best way to measure what I'm talking about is by measuring compliance or adherence, but not compliance or adherence to somebody else's idea of what you should be doing, but compliance or, or adherence to the plan that was agreed to you know, with your healthcare professional. So whatever you agreed to do, measure compliance with that. You know, did you keep your follow-up appointment? Did you fill your medicine? Did you see the specialist? Did, you know, did you do the exercises? But whatever it is that you've agreed to, not, not that somebody else has told you you should do. Agreed. And you, you've made a very good point there and how the language that we use when we're talking about outcomes. There's one thing that I'm Still a bit curious about when you started, you said that you wanted to be a biologist. So that is very academic, but you're talking like an artist. 
when I took my aptitude test when I was uh, in college and I couldn't figure out what I was what I should do, I I scored highest on pediatrician, farmer, and uh, author. <laughs> and and since I was in college, I didn't really think that I, there's much future for me in farming, and I and I and I didn't really see myself as an author. I'd never done that well in English classes, so I I, I picked a physician. <laughs> well, thereby hangs the tail because you are an amazing physician and you certainly did okay in English because the work that I read reads extraordinarily well. You remind me, Jim Mould, of the person to whom I dedicated my book called The Art of Doctoring, James McCormack, the late, great James McCormack Professor of General Practice Primary Care at Trinity College Dublin. And it was very much for him about walking with the patient we are losing sight of the person who's sitting in front of us, the person who's, who's asking for our help. And in the process, we are becoming irrelevant in that person's life. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, well, it all has to do with, it goes back also to what you said about living in a, in a small town where you get to know everybody. And, and I, I disagree. I think it's possible to get to know people in an urban environment too. It's just, it requires continuity. If you take care of the same, the same set of people over a long period of time and you get to know them, you start to really care about how things turn out for them. You know, so you start to really focus on the outcomes. When you don't know people that well and you're just trying and you, just, and you, and you, view, it, you view it as a job and you, you know, just want to make sure you take the boxes, then, then the tendency is to focus on the strategies, not the outcomes. You take the boxes, you get their A1C down, you get their blood pressure down, you put them on the right medicines, you get the right tests and so forth. But you're not really focused on the outcomes. You're making an assumption. I mean, if, if someone challenged you on that, you would say, well, if I do all these things, their outcomes will, will, will take care of themselves and they, will, they'll, they should do better. That's what the evidence says. If I do all these things, they'll do better. Well, sometimes that's true, but not enough of the time. It's not, it's not a very strong correlation between taking the boxes and people doing better for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, one of which is adherence. I mean, people, I don't see why anybody takes blood pressure medicine. I, I don't understand it. I mean, because, you know, the best we ever do is we'll say, well, the reason you have to take this is because it'll lower your risk of a stroke or a heart attack. But by how much? I mean, what are we talking about here? I mean, we never explain to people by how much or, you know, how bad would that be if, you, if that did happen? Or we, th there's not enough information provided to even make a rational decision about whether you should do that or not. So I don't know. I mean, people, the fact that the fact that 50 percent of people actually adhere to what we say is a, is a mystery to me because they, they never talk about the actual goal. And the goal actually isn't to prevent a heart attack or a stroke. The goal is to prevent premature death and disability. That's the, that's the actual. So, and we don't even necessarily have the data to supply them if they ask the right question. So if, if they ask the right question, like, well, so if I take this medicine for the next, for the rest of my life, I guess that's what you're talking about the rest of my life um, until we come up with a better one, how many more months or years am I going to live on average? And what are we talking about here? A week, a year, 10 years? I mean, that would be helpful information for me to know. And, and if I did have a heart attack, what's the chance it would cause me to be disabled? I mean, I, I've heard about these wonderful things where you can open up the arteries now. And, and if I, got, I live within five minutes of the hospital, I could get in real quick and they could open it back up. So what do I care if I have a heart attack? 
What's the probability they'll kill me before I get to the hospital? What's the probability it'll cause me to be disabled? Those are the outcomes of importance. We never talk about those at all. But if you knew your patient, if this was somebody you knew and cared about, you would care about those outcomes. 30 years ago, James McCormack gave a lecture that said exactly the same thing in another part of the world. You're echoing those words. We don't talk about number needed to treat. This is the famous number that people spit out when patients ask, well, you know, how many people would you have to treat? What most people think is the number is one. If I treated one person with this medication, that that person would survive. The answer is probably 500, more like 500. So you're saying 500 blokes like me take this medication and one of us won't have a heart attack. Those are not great odds, are they? Yeah, I know. In, in another paper I wrote, I talked about uh, my, my decision as to whether to take a statin. The doctor was providing me with these inf- information about uh, risk and so forth. And I said, well, I, I'm really not interested in improving population statistics. You know, I'm really most, mostly interested in improving my, my own uh, survival. So I don't really think number needed to treat is that useful. I do think absolute risk reduction is very useful. Not relative risk reduction, but absolute risk reduction. That's, that's what's most useful. And, and that's where you probably need the help of a good computer because um, you can get absolute risk reductions from the studies, but nobody looks like the people who are in the studies. So in my case, I could reduce my risk of a heart attack by 3%. And, it, and if, if, if 50% over 10 years, if, if 50% of heart attacks are, are silent, that's, it's only one and a half percent that I care about. And if, and, if, and if only some percentage of those actually cause death or disability, it's, it's an even smaller number. You're right. And then if we look at the other number, the number that people don't want to talk about, number needed to harm, well, that's interesting. You get a lot more harm from these things than benefit. That's only true if you, are, if you, if you don't pick correctly. So if you don't choose the right interventions, if you choose the right interventions, if you prioritize properly, then the benefit is much greater than the harm. That's, that's be, and that's why you chose that intervention. But the, the other principle is that there's a law of diminishing return. It says that if you had 10 things you could do to reduce your risk of a heart attack, once you've picked the three best of those, you've pretty much gotten the benefit, benefit out of all of them. You don't have to do all 10 of them, right? You just need to prioritize you need to focus on the things that are most important. Stopping smoking is almost always the most important one, other than moving to a safer neighborhood or locking the guns or something. But, but for, for the most part, smoking cessation is, is the right choice. The uh, benefits almost always outweigh the harms. Jim Mould, it's very unusual for us to speak to somebody who is such an artist in this particular field and who clearly has thought deeply about the whole business of healthcare and the whole business of doctoring. It's been a great honor speaking with you, and I hope that we'll have another conversation very soon. Anytime. Enjoyed it. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.